0: Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapter 20, where we'll be this morning. If you want to get that first slide on, that'd be great. There you go. Well, we live in a time in history where it can be kind of discouraging being a Christian, can't it? I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, it's not just what the world thinks of us, but it's kind of how the church looks as well. I mean, the church can look pretty chaotic nowadays. If we're honest with ourselves, there's a clear divide among Christians on politics or masks or vaccines and that's just recent national issues. And we can harbor on those for a while. But we can look at look across the nation, and, 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 and point out some differing views on some simple things that have been around for a while. I mean, we can start with an easy one like alcohol. You come out to certain areas of the country, the Pacific Northwest is an example, and beer and wine is embraced, all in moderation. You go to the South or the Midwest or my hometown, and that's a big no-no, especially if you're clergy. Or we could go generational divisions, right? Generational divides. Don't get my grandparents started on wearing a hat in church. I mean, they're dead, but they would turn around their graves if I was wearing a hat in church. Those are just easy ones, but we, we, we can point out the big one. The divide between liberal Christians or conservative Christians. I mean, the, the, the church... Seems to be lacking some unity. And guess what? We're not the only ones who notice this. Check out this video. You could have a face to face conversation today with Jesus. What is the one thing that you would want to say? Bro, get control of your fan base. Bro. Get control of your fan base. Whether or not this girl who's responding to the question is a Christian or not, we know that she's making an observation that maybe a lot of the world would make. And at this time in history, the church seems to be pretty fragile. Now, we might look out of control on some things such as biblical teachings, right? Biblical teachings on gender or marriage or the sanctity of life and we can live with that and we should live with that we have to but some of it the reason why the church might look a little out of control is because of a subtle form of rebellion Our text today is a prime example of of, of God's people, Israel, in a fragile situation. As we're continuing in Samuel, we see division, brokenness, and recklessness all under David's reign and rule. And it has a lot to do with rebellion in two forms. And this passage lays out those forms clearly. But sadly, the ending of this chapter Leaves us with little hope. And the end is exactly where I want to start this morning. I want to treat this ending like, like a movie. I want to treat this chapter like a movie where when you start the movie or the show, it starts with the end first, and the rest of the movie is how we get to that ending. And that's how we're going to treat this chapter today. So let's start with reading 2 Samuel chapter 20, verses 23 through 26 says this, and forgive me if I butcher some of these names. The Bades did a great job with those. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benai, the son of Jehoda, was in command of the Cherithites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Helud was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary. And Zodek and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jerite was also David's priest. Now, if you've been following along with us, we've been going through 2 Samuel, and, and this might sound familiar to you, and it's okay if it doesn't, because uh, a while ago we went through chapter 8, and it ends almost the same way. Let's look at chapter 8, verses 15 through 18, and it's okay if you don't turn there. I'll read it. Chapter, 15, chapter 8, verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitab and Amilelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Zariah was secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehodah, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. These endings seem very similar, but they couldn't be more different. They're easily glossed over, but we've got to catch some of the differences here. And John Woodhouse does us a big favor by pointing them out in his commentary, showing us the clear contrast between these two endings. First, the first contrast is the lack of positive description in 2 Samuel chapter 20 at the end. Chapter 8 ends by describing David's reign as just and with equity. But due to David's collapse in chapter 11 with Bathsheba, his reign has been the opposite of justice and equity. It has been about survival. It has been chaotic. The second contrast is Joab's role in the kingdom. Chapter 8, verse 15 says Joab was over the army. But chapter 20... Ends with saying he is over all the army. He has full and complete control. If you've been following with us, you'll you'll catch on. that That's not good. Not good at all. And finally, there has been a new position added. If you think of this as like David's cabinet, he's added a new position and someone to look over it. Adore Not mentioned in chapter 8, but mentioned in chapter 20. He was put in charge of the forced labor. David has now added a new member of his cabinet, and it has nothing to do with justice and equity. Actually, it's the complete opposite. Forced labor is just a fancy bureaucratic way of saying slavery. And if you look further on, you go into the kings, you see that the slavery divides the kingdom. This is the backdrop to our text today. David's kingdom is fragile and divided. And where we end is not good. The question is, how did we get there? Well, we get there because of two rebellious people. And these two rebellious people are examples of two very common ways of rebelling in the world one obvious, one very subtle. The first form of rebellion is the obvious rejection of the king. That's the first form of rebellion. It is an obvious rejection of the king. Sheba is our prime example of this kind of rejection. Sheba enters the scene during the, during, at the beginning of our passage while he is gathering with Israel and is talking to David. This is at the end of chapter 19. They're all talking to David and they're arguing over who has the most claim to David, meaning, who has the most to gain from David's return. David doesn't intervene, though, to bring unity to this argument or to bring peace about the division. And it starts to get out of hand. And then Sheba interjects. When we hear Sheba speak, it it seems as if he's had enough and is ready to end this conversation. He's done with it. Sheba clearly rejects the king and calls the men of Israel to return to their tents, to their homes. Which means, leave the king, go home, and follow me. Follow me. This is going completely wrong. David's return was to bring unity, but rather it's bringing division. And Sheba is now becoming the driving force of that division. This is why he's referred to as a worthless man, for he rejects David as king. Not only did he reject him as king, but he was attempting to take all of Israel with him. This is a clear sign of rebellion against God's king. And if you reject God's King, in result, you are rejecting God Himself. I mean, this is similar to when people say, I believe there's a God, I I just don't believe in Jesus. Or, like, I believe there's a God, there's something up there, but I don't believe that Jesus was actually the Son of God or, or actually did those things He said or what He said about Himself. Well, the problem is that's not how it works. To believe in God's anointed king is to follow his anointed king. It is to know him. To reject his anointed king is to reject God. As Jesus says later in the New Testament, If you had known me, you would have known the Father. To reject God's anointed king is to reject God himself. This is a clear sign of rebellion, isn't it? It is the most obvious form of sin in the world. In youth group, we teach the students an acronym for sin. I wish I would have made it as a slide, but I didn't. The acronym goes this way. The S stands for shove off God. The I stands for I'm in charge. And the N, not you. Shove off God. I'm in charge, not you. And this is what Sheba is saying right here. By directly telling David to shove off, he is telling God to shove off. This we we can't make a distinction there. He's rebelling. And this is why he's called worthless. Now let me tell you, let, let me say what we're not saying here about this idea of worthless. It doesn't mean that your friend in school or your co-worker or your neighbor or your family member is completely worthless as a person because they've rejected Christ. No, of course not. God still cares for them. God still wants them to come to him. But as a member of the kingdom, they are worthless. They bring nothing to the kingdom. So. Even though he's described as worthless, his words still hold weight. His charge to the people is not deemed worthless, for the men of Israel follow him. The tribes of Israel go with him. They follow Sheba, and the men of Judah faithfully follow David. This form of rebellion has caused a division. That was the opposite of what David's return as king was meant to do. So, what does David do? He goes home. Verse 3 may seem odd to us as the readers today, but but this is a very important part. David's house is a picture of his kingdom. David goes home to a dark and chaotic, broken home. His ten concubines greet David for the first time since Absalom slept with them to humiliate David and in result humiliating them. So the return of the king to his home is dark, heavy, and probably very awkward. His kingdom is a reflection of his home life. It's out of control and broken. So what does David do? He tries to fix it by taking control. He locks them away. He cares for them, kind of. They have food, shelter, and water, but they were treated as widows. Widows that were locked away. This once gentle king who extended grace and mercy is now becoming almost passive and controlling. Things in David's personal and political life are fragile. They're fragile. And it's about to get worse. After taking care of the concubines and handling that situation, his energy is directed towards the worthless man Sheba. Here, David, again, wants to take control. He summons Amasa, his new commander, over his army, as seen in chapter 19, verse 13, where he was promoted over Joab. He sends him to gather the men of Judah and bring them to him. He says, you have three days. Now, three days might seem like a long time to us, 72 hours or so, right? But then, back then, they didn't have texting. They didn't have email. So they couldn't just say, hey, everyone, gather up at David's place. No, he had to go find them across a tribe, across a nation, thousands of men, thousands of people. And so he's taking too long, and David panics. So he sends Abishai to go after Sheba, because David is afraid that if Sheba is not stopped, his division would actually be worse than Absalom's. So, this is a big deal for David. He's trying to bring this peace. He's trying to bring this unity. And he tells Abishai to take David's best men. So, whose men does he take? Well, he takes Joab's men. And who happens to be with Joab's men other than Joab himself? And this is where the story gets a little juicy. Joab has a motive, he is angry, he's getting overlooked. And demoted by David for these two other men, Amasa and Abishai. Joab is losing control and power in David's kingdom. So what does he do? He takes matters into his own hand. He takes control. He joins Abishai and his own men on the quest for Sheba. And while they're on their way, they cross paths or they meet with Amasa and the men of Judah. Amasa was finishing his task, but it was taking too long. And when they finally meet Amasa, Joab intervenes. Let's look at verses 8 through 10 together, because it paints the picture perfectly. This is what happens. Look at verses 8 with me. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now, Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword, and its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, It is well. Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Here's Joab, most likely motivated by his demotion, kills David's own flesh and blood as described in chapter 19 who also is David's appointed commander of his army Joab kills him the attack is so swift that the author has no reason uh, adds that there, there was no reason for a second blow this was not a fight this was murder Joab is a killer but he kills with an agenda and that agenda is power Covered in the name of the king. Joab is hungry for the power that comes with serving David. He acknowledges David's reign as king, but as John Woodhouse points out, he rejects his will. And this is the second form of rebellion to acknowledge the king's position, but to reject his will. Another way to say it is one can acknowledge the crown, but reject its authority. Joab has been doing this all along. He has been doing everything in the name of David, but truly has been for his own gain. He thinks he is actually serving the king by going against the king's will, or another way to say it, against his word. Let's look at four different times, this will include Amasa here, that Joab has went against the king's will or murdered for his own gain. Think of the story of Abner, chapter 3, uh, 27, if you want to look at that sometime. Joab kills Abner to avenge his brother, um, Asel. This is not what the king uh, wanted. Rather, the king had just shown mercy and peace with Abner. But Joab was not satisfied. He wanted vengeance, and he took it into his own hands. Uriah, the the, uh, husband of, of Bathsheba. Now, you might think, Oh, well, that was David's doing. It was. David called for the execution to happen, but Joab had no problem doing it. No problem. And actually, as we're learning about Joab, it was probably his pleasure to do that for the king. Probably one of the few things that he actually agreed with the king on in regards to that. And just before Amasa, we have Absalom, chapter 18, David's own son who David did not want killed, did not want him executed, but Joab did so anyways. And now Amasa, where Joab comes to Amasa disguised as a soldier with a sword on his hip, his leg, and he bends down. You can almost think of it as he's falling down, and Amasa comes to him and says, are you okay? It's kind of what that language is there. Are you okay? And with his right hand, Joab reaches up. And that communicates two things to here: One, that this man is unarmed, so this is going to be a peaceful exchange. And two, that they're brothers. That that this is going to be be a kiss, a, a, a kiss, a, a greeting of a kiss. And all while that's happening, Joab has vengeance and rage in his left hand and kills him. Can you see Judas in this? <laughs> Where he comes up and kisses Jesus. He goes to kiss him, and Jesus sees right through it. He says, friend, come to do what you have done, what you are coming to do. Both the Mass and Jesus would die unjust deaths at the hands of those who say they're coming in peace. David had no interest in punishing Amasa's tardiness with death. David was known as a gentle king, a gracious king, but not his servant, not his envious, arrogant former commander, Joab. He wanted power and authority, and Amasa had it. And Joab would have never taken this long to finish the job of getting Sheba and ending this rebellion. You know who I picture when I see this, who Joab reminds me of? He reminds me of Colonel William Tavington from the movie The Patriot. If you've ever seen that, it's a it's a movie about the the Revolutionary War and and Great Britain and America and and uh, William Tavington is a fictional character for them, for 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 Great Britain and he is ruthless. He does it all in the name of Great Britain, all under his commander. He he does what he's told, but he goes way further. In the the movie, he's shot children and he kills surrendered captives and went against his general's commands in almost everything, all in the name of unity. This is the type of heart Joab has. His rebellion seems less obvious, but it is rebellion nonetheless. He doesn't submit to David's will, but he serves his cra- David's crown in his own way. Actually, he serves his own crown in the name of the king. And he carries this rebellion on. Joab has control now, and he leads these men towards the city where Sheba is hiding. While the men are passing by, though, on the way to the city of Abel, they see their former commander, Amasa, laying on the ground, dying, potentially dead at that time. And the sheer evil and violence of Joab's murder of Amasa is catching the men's attention. So a young man of Joab's stands, guard, and yells, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. This is what it means to follow Joab. He's equivalent to following David. And if you go against Joab, you go against David. And ultimately this is the result, death. The problem was this kept catching the men's attention. (laughs) So what does the young man do? Well, he gets rid of the distraction. This is still a common practice today, isn't it? You hear it all the time. If you follow this political leader or this preacher or this Christian trend, then you are truly following the king. You're truly a Christian. Well, isn't this what Paul rebukes in 1 Corinthians when he says, for when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? This is the problem with the human heart. It wanders from the true king. It confuses earthly power and influence with divine power and influence. Joab is not equivalent to the king. He is simply a servant who got demoted and is furious about it. He's going to show David how capable he truly is. And so he, chooses, he chases down Sheba. When you finally find Sheba, it is obvious that Sheba's plan of rebellion has fallen short. He only has his families, his tribe's men with him. And he's in Abel, uh, the city of Abel. Probably at this point, either he's hiding or he's recruiting more. We're not exactly sure what he's doing. But he's found by Joab and his men. Do you see the language shift there? I mean, it's no longer Abishai who's leading Joab's men, but it's Joab. Abishai probably saw what happened and was like, I don't want anything to do with that. And so Joab takes over. He is leading the attack on the city. While attacking the city, Joab is confronted by a wise woman of the city. She explains to him the history of the city, its significance in Israel's history, and the devastation it would bring to destroy it. So Joab says, that's not my intention here. And so he listens to the wise woman. Now, this wisdom isn't necessarily a godly wisdom. We're not sure if that's what's happening here, but it's a wisdom nonetheless. It's a practical kind of wisdom that will save the city and give Joab what he wants, Sheba. So the deal is made. Joab will attack, will, will stop the attack in return for Sheba. Ultimately, Sheba's head. The story makes it clear that Sheba did not have that much influence in his rebellion because moments later, his head is tossed over the city wall and Joab and his men return to Jerusalem and Joab returns to the king. Now, we're not given insight into David and Joab's interaction, but what we do know is that David already has a bad taste of Joab in his mouth. If you go back to chapter 3 and reread that, you'll see that David does not end well with Joab. But he carries him on. He keeps him on his cabinet. And in this situation, he does not discipline him. Rather, he keeps him on his cabinet and he promotes him, which is right where he wants to be, as commander over all the army. Joab gets to where he wants Not through submission to the king, but in rebellion to the king's will. Joab, in the name of the king, is executing his own agenda. Joab believes he is bringing peace and unity to Israel, but rather, he's doing the opposite. Joab is bringing destruction and chaos, fear and trembling. And he is doing it all for his own gain. Joab was envious and jealous of the promotion of Amos and uh, Abakai. And so what does he do? He takes things into his own hands. He does the same thing Sheba does. He tells the king to shove off. I'm in charge, not you. But in a little bit more of a subtle way, he recognizes the king's position, but he ignores his will. I can't help but be reminded of the story of the prodigal son as we read this passage. The story about how two sons, an older and a younger, approach their father, asking for his blessing now, their inheritance now, which basically means, give me what is mine, Uh, you mean nothing to me, you're dead to me, but I want what is rightfully mine. The younger son completely abandons the father, and the older stays Well, in the New Testament, we follow the story of the younger brother, the one who leaves, and his life leads to ruin, and he eventually returns to the father's loving embrace and forgiveness. But we don't follow the details of the story of the brother who stays. Well, I think Joab is a bit of the embodiment of that older brother. He wants the blessing of being in the king's house or good standing without the submission to his will and plan. He wants what he believes to be rightfully his without following the king's authority. He recognizes the king's position but does not heed or follow his words or his will. He loves the benefits, but it doesn't seem like he really loves the king. So many people resonate with the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. He stays faithful to the father, doing all the right things, it seems like, but really for his own gain. You can see this, how he reacts to the father when when he embraces the son who's returned and gives him all these gifts. He's envious, he's jealous, he's angry. This is Joab. We are too often Joab. We remain faithful to the king, but often only for our own gain. We do so many things in his name, thinking it is the right thing to do, but really, it's only for our own agenda, and it really brings about chaos. Personally, this is a warning to me in ministry. Youth pastors are some of the most competitive people in the world. We often get our praise confused for God's praise. We do things for our own gain and our own prominence, our own recognition. We get overly competitive in the name of Jesus. It's not just youth pastors, it's not just people in ministry. I mean, think about what you see on your social media feeds that are intended to be Christian but bring about division. We have People who claim to be brothers and sisters in the faith posting toxic statuses about political issues condemning any Christian or anyone else who disagrees with them as not true followers of the king. We see people who claim to be doing the Lord's work while they viciously attack and protest at certain places of business or political rallies all in the name of the Lord. No wonder... The world is telling Jesus to get his fan base together, but Matthew 7, allow me to turn there, tells us he he knows. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, let me say what I'm not saying here. What, we're, what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't have an opinion about politics. Or we shouldn't post on our socials. Or that you shouldn't attend protests or rallies. But let's ask this question. We have to be honest with ourselves. Are we representing the king or our own agenda? Are we ushering in a gentle and lowly king or a vicious, ruthless king? Are we rebelling even though we think it's for the king? Are we recognizing his position without submitting to his will? Because our king will return as judge. That's true. But he's also a king who will reign. And what kind of kingdom will he have? Well, I think he'll have one like David did in chapter 8, verse 15. That he rules with justice and equity to all. He will be a blessing. He will be with peace and mercy. What kind of king are we representing? Well, let me say another thing I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there isn't grace and forgiveness for these two forms of rebellion. Rather, that's my hope. That there is, because that's my heart. And actually, that is the only way to true unity. Forgiveness from the perfect king. That's the beauty of the prodigal son. Both are still called sons. He still loves them and welcomes them back to his home. That's the beauty of Christ. That's the beauty of our King, that through his death and his resurrection, we can come to this gracious, ruling King and receive forgiveness. He doesn't do it through some political scheme or some power, but through his love and grace and mercy. He brings unity. We have a king that will bring unity among his people in spite of our rebellion or the world's rejection of him. His return will usher in peace and unity among his people. There will be a perfect unity among his people. And the beauty is we have the opportunity to reflect that now because of the gift of his spirit. It reconciles us to him and to each other. My heart, and I would venture to say our hearts, tend to be wired like Joab's. A recognition of the king, but a dismissal of his will and authority. This is a form of rebellion. It is a form we must repent of and submit to the king. That is gentle and lowly that we can approach, that we have true hope in, He is a king that is appointed by a God that desires mercy, not sacrifice. And he is a king that, like his father, still deeply loves his sons, even when they rebel against him. Our king is a king who will bring unity even when his people don't. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that he lived a life on our behalf that we can't. And we thank you for the unity we can find in him through his death, his resurrection, and the sending of his spirit. We pray for this. Amen.